When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, June 19th, was week one of the 2023 grass court season. A little bit weird. Yes, it certainly was. That said, did we have another fun championship weekend on the ATP and WTA tours? We most certainly did. And on today's show, I want to offer my final reflections on the six events we've been focused on on this podcast over the course of the past week. Now, as you know, That includes the four tour-level events we saw unfold, and I'll start today's show by offering my thoughts on what was certainly our weirdest, but definitely still a fun event on the WTA side in Nottingham. I mean, we had our first all-British final on the WTA Tour in 46 years, and anyone who watched Katie Bolter play throughout the course of the week, through all the chaos, there's no doubt Bolter was the best player in the draw, at least over the course of the past week in Nottingham. The level she showed, in particular in the final, it's worthy of being crowned a WTA title winner. And of course, it is the first tour-level title in the career of Katie Bolter. I want to break down what she did so well all week long in Nottingham. Talk about her championship performance, offer my final reflections on that event. Of course, I also want to break down everything that happened in the Netherlands. We saw something In fact, that we just don't see very frequently across professional tennis. We saw someone defend their title. And of course, I'm referring to ECAT, Ekaterina Alexandrova, who is always capable of putting together weeks like this. I mean, she won this very title last season in the Netherlands, where just the length, the drive, the repeated tenacity of every ground stroke she fires at an opponent, it can be overwhelming and Look, she dropped just one set on her way to the title in the Netherlands. And I'll tell you what, anyone who watched the final between ECAN and Veronica Kudermatova, that's top 10 level tennis on grass courts. Those are two players who I think can absolutely make runs. If we're taking a 30,000-foot view, why does this result in the Netherlands matter? Because both Kudermatova and Alexandrova are capable of making runs to the second week of Wimbledon. And if you haven't, I recommend you go watch the highlights from their final match. It was a fun one. I'll break that down, talk about the other takeaways from that event on the women's side. Of course, on the men's side, look, The success of Talon Greekspor is real. You win one title in a season, you have our attention. You win multiple titles in a single year, you are belonging. Not only in the top 50 of the ATP Tour, but you're belonging of a top 40 spot. You're belonging of seeding at a lot of slams because... Look, Talon Greekspor's now won titles on multiple surfaces. He's sustained this level that... Of course, most prominently came to the attention of all of us in 2021 when he had a record-setting year, winning, what, eight challenger titles, I believe, that season. That level hasn't gone away. 
he wins a title. Not only that, he becomes the highest-ranked Dutch player, and he does it all on home soil as well. Come from behind, three-set win in the final. The Netherlands men's side got weird. I mean, you're talking Thompson, Greekspoor, Hijikata, things we love here at Crack Rackets. And so in case you missed any of that action, I'll catch you up here on today's show. And then, of course, most notably, welcome to the top 10, Francis Tiafo. It feels like this podcast was predicated on projecting Francis Tiafo's future. And look, I, being the nerd that I am, remember when he was the youngest Easter Bowl winner beating Stefan Kozlov in what was a thrilling three-set match. Not Easter Bowl, excuse me, Orange Bowl. And, you know, I remember when he won the 14th Easter Bowl, for what it's worth. Shout out to Colette Lewis for providing the video of that event. And I think his forehand looked then like it looks now. Of course, he played the best Kalamazoo match I've ever seen, another five-set thriller with Kozlov. Anyways, he does all these things. You know, the clay court challenger run, what was that, back in 2017 or 2018? And, you know, he makes a final in, in Delray, makes a final in Estoril, wins his first title, U.S. Open semifinals, beats Nadal to do it. He's a top 10 player in the world. It feels like forever we've been projecting his upside. But guess what? Francis Tiafa right now, I believe, is one of just five players who's won titles on all four, or five active players to have won titles on all three surfaces. And, You know, again, Francis wins his third title of his career in impressive fashion, whether it was the way he came back mentally after blowing a lead and dropping a first set against Musetti in the quarterfinals or just the steadiness he displayed in his come-from-behind three-set victory against uh, Jan Leonard Struff in the final. And, you know, again, Struff's playing on home soil. Struff's looking for his first title. Struff's been a top-20 guy for four months, and... You know, I hate the phrase people don't talk enough about because who are these people that aren't talking enough about? Who are you looking for to be talking about said subject that you're aggrieved isn't brought up more frequently? But it should be more commended. It should be more uh, – it just it, – it's remarkable what Jan Leonard Struff has done. And I got the chance to see the start of his run, which really came back in February or March, excuse me, in Phoenix. And we got to talk to him then. And you could just tell in an interview you can go listen to on the Cracked Interviews podcast, by the way, he had a peace of mind. And you see that peace of mind and just how he's swinging freely. And yet in all the ways Tiafo's game used to break down, he he's just you know, again, we don't have to project, can he be this player anymore? He is that guy now. And you saw that in his match against Struff. The match points were exceptional in the third set. It was a really fun match. I want to talk about Stuttgart. Obviously, it's a jam-packed agenda here on today's show because I want to talk about those four things. And I'll do them more succinctly, more efficiently than perhaps I am here in this opening monologue. But then we got to talk about a couple of old heads who prevailed. A couple of guys we were monitoring all week long. Andy Murray's won 10 matches in a row. I don't care that they're on the challenger level. You win 10 matches in a row, you always have the tennis world's attention. He's done it back-to-back weeks on the challenger tour, on grass courts, a surface where obviously he's won multiple slams in his career. And given the relative unknown, so you know, guys like Alcaraz, Sinner, Runa, even you know, the Tsitsipas's and Zverev's and Medvedev's given his ups and downs on this surface of late, just given how unknown quantities they are on this surface outside of Djokovic, who's the second best guy on grass courts? Obviously, the popular thing yesterday was to say, can Andy Murray win Wimbledon? But 
I suppose it's a legitimate conversation we can entertain here on today's show. And then we'll just celebrate. This might be as in-depth as you're going to get. Kei Nishikori back in the winner's circle. He wins the challenger in Puerto Rico. I mean, shout out to Michael Zhang and the fine. We'll, we'll talk about it. The old heads having some success last week. Again, six events I want to highlight here on today's show. I'm going to do it efficiently. I promise this show. I don't know why I'm promising it to you all now as I'm recording it because you'll have seen when you clicked on the episode whether I lied or not. But I think I can do all that in an efficient and effective manner in under 45 minutes here for all of you listeners today. So here's the podcast for your commute home, for your commute to the grocery store, for your commute to pick up your kids, for your commute back from practice. If you are said kid listening, here's here's your thoughts on – here are some thoughts, excuse me, on everything that's happened over the past week in the professional tennis world so that you all are caught up to speed on everything that's happening. Of course, before I do that – Got to give a shout out to a couple of other pro tennis players who had success this past week, whether it's 20-year-old Italian Lorenzo Claveri, whether it's 25-year-old former UNC All-American Sarah Davatilla. Each of them earned their first pro singles titles of their career this past week on the USTA SoCal Pro Circuit. And let me just tell you, the level of tennis was immense and it was top 300 stuff. And I don't say that facetiously or to try and entice all of you listeners to come watch our broadcasts each and every weekend, but if you're not watching already, you're missing out on really good tennis. And a massive thank you to Chris Boyer, the entire USTA SoCal team for including our Crack Rackets team in the broadcast to be able to shine a spotlight on this level of the game. Uh, It's such a thrill for our team. And so if you want to watch more tennis, you don't have enough in your life already, you can check out our coverage of the USTA SoCal Pro Series every Saturday and Sunday for free on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel, of course. You can also check out all the content we've produced of late on our website, CrackRackets.com, whether it be my conversations with 2023 NCA singles champion Fangran Tien, 2023 French Open men's doubles champion Austin Krejcik. You can find those conversations and so many more over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. You're looking for more coverage challengers college level our great shot podcast feed is for you like rate subscribe review to all the shows share them with your friends and of course as always a shout out as always to super producer daniel westoff who makes all of our content possible that said last but not least Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right. All of that said, let's talk about the past weekend on the WTA and ATP tours. Again, it was weird, but it was a fun championship weekend. And I mean, none of the top eight seeds reached the quarterfinals in the Netherlands. And you knew things were going to get a little bit funky. I believe you had three out of the four semifinalists were British players. That's the first time that's happened since 1975. And then, of course, you had your first all-British final in 46 years as Katie Bolter took on the promising 24-year-old Brit Jody Burridge. Now, look, Bolter was exceptional all week long. You know, didn't drop a set on her way to the first title of her pro career. And the 26-year-old has always had promise, has always had talent, was a top junior in the world, was someone who was having ITF pro circuit success as a teenager. Uh, She's just been played by injuries throughout the course of her career. It's felt like she's never had a consecutive stretch where she's able to play, you know, 30, 40, dare I say even 50 matches in not just one season, but three consecutive seasons or a, you know, a 
40-month run where she could certainly establish herself and solidify her spot in the rankings. That said, she has been able to play more tennis over the course of the past few years. And, you know, you look for Katie Bolter now here in 2023 specifically or over her last 52 weeks overall. Obviously, she makes that run beating Pliskova to the third round of Wimbledon last year. She made round of 16 in Eastbourne last year, round of 16 in Tallinn last year, she, uh, you know, wins a 60K event at the start of this year. She made a final of an 80K event and won another 60K event at the start of May. Semifinals in Serbatin at the start of this month as well. She's 40 and 21 over her last 52 weeks. I would question any of you, scroll through the tennis abstract, find the last time Katie Bolter was able to play 60 plus matches in a 52 week stretch of time. Her body just hasn't always allowed that throughout the course of her career, and that's why it really is no shock to see with this 60-match sample size, Bolter able to become the top 100 player that she's always shown the level of. Just go watch her play. Go watch the weapons on display. She won over 75% of her first serve points in her final three matches of the of the tournament against Sneaker, against Watson, against, uh, excuse me, Dart as well. And, um, or excuse me, she played Sneaker. That was the round of 32, uh, round of 16 match against Dart, against Watson, against Burridge. You know, she's able to win over 75% of her first serve points in all three of those matches. And, she was just on her front foot with the size she has, the length she has with her arms. It, you know, it evokes shades of a Paula Bedosa when Bedosa is at her healthiest, you know, stepping into the court, driving that backhand cross court to open the drive down the line. What was so impressive, and, you know, again, this is a bolter who's made the quarterfinal in Nottingham now three times in her career, has made a third round in Wimbledon. She had a lot of success on grass courts. And you can just see how comfortable she is moving on this surface. Does a great job of keeping the ball in front of her. You know, again, does a great job of getting her momentum going forward into every swing. And more than anything else, and again, she's playing facing players like Dart, like Watson, like Burge, who don't have these overwhelming first serves and overwhelming power of some of the top 50 opponents she may see moving forward. But... If you don't have that overwhelming power to get that ball into Bolter's body with some action, she's going to redirect it with chutzpah. She's going to redirect it with pace. And, you know, again, how comfortable she was moving forward, how much dictating she did and, you know, how how well she used her size to hold her ground on the baseline. It was a really impressive week of front foot tennis for Katie Bolter, who, again, is now into the top 100 and into the uh up to a new career high of number 77 for the first time in her career. Did she face a single-seated opponent on her way to the title? No. Did she face three qualifiers and a lucky loser on her way to the title? Yes. Is Jody Burridge, who she faced in the final, ever been a top 100 player in her career? No. Did Bolter win all of those matches in straight sets? She did. And sometimes, I know this is silly, but to be a top 100 player... You have to beat the players who are ranked below you. You have to win the matches you're supposed to win. And on paper, again, given her experience level and the delta between her and the others in the field once we reach championship weekend, it's crazy to say, but Katie Bolter became the favorite and she looked the part. And, you know, again, I know there was a little drama with her and Dart at the handshake at the end. Bolter likes to do the Stan Wawrinka point to the head, which, yes, she does after every match, and Dart objected to it. You can understand why Dart did. It was a very competitive three and five match. Both of them were striking the ball so cleanly, 
But man, again, the size, the court sense, how fluid she looked on this surface. Katie Bolter looks top 50 good, not top 100 good, top 50 good on grass courts. And so is she a contender to win the title? No. Could she make a round of 32, beat a seed, make it to the second week? I mean, she's already made a third round of her career at Wimbledon. And again, just given the lack of experience for players, I mean, it's crazy how many matches Coco Golf's already gotten on her in her career at Wimbledon. But Sviantek's still played fewer than 30 grass court matches at the pro level. You know, again, all these players you can turn to. Sabalenka wasn't allowed to play Wimbledon last year. All the Russians weren't allowed to play Wimbledon last year. I just think Wimbledon might be weird, and I I see the level that Katie Bolter plays. Is she a top-tier dark horse? No. Is she someone who could beat a seed at Wimbledon and make it around further than she should by her ranking? Absolutely. And so that's my biggest takeaway from Nottingham. All the Brits looked comfortable, and we've seen Heather Watson go on a run. We've seen, you know, Harriet Dart, when she's on her front foot, when she's striking the ball cleanly, God, are her ground strokes pure. And yes, she can misfire. Yes, the unforced errors do pile up on her at times. But if she can get hot, she take a set off anyone. And now she's a home crowd player up a set on whomever it is she's facing. I honestly think Dart was my second most impressive player of the weekend. Now, Alizé Cornet did her thing in making the semifinals. And credit to Jody Burridge, who, again, 24 years old, she reaches her first tour-level final of her career this week in Nottingham, gets good wins over Lynette, Cornet, Freak, Martin Sova, all veterans. Again, Bolter just played so freaking well in the final, but... The level that seems most sustainable to me and the one that just looks so comfortable is Katie Bolter because, again, she wins 75% of her first serve points, three consecutive matches. She was on her front foot in all of them, and it was the movement. She just was the only one who didn't look like a fish out of water at times moving on this surface, other than Alizé Cornet, who, of course, has played just as many matches as anyone. And so the biggest takeaway is Bolter coming out of Nottingham. She wins the first title of her career at the tour level and, again, up to a new career high, number 77, as a, as a result of doing so. That said, let's move on to our next event. We'll head over to the Netherlands. I want to start on the women's side because the best ch- – I don't know. They're both really good. Kudermatova, Alexandrova, and Tiafo Struff were both exceptional matches. Honestly, Greek Sport Thompson, the third set was a little poopy, but the first two sets were exceptional. Um, but more than anything, I thought Alexandrova, Kudermatova is right up there with Tiafo Struff for the best match of the weekend. And ultimately, it was the number four seed, Ecat, 4-6-6-4-7-6. She takes the match to defend her title in the Netherlands. And, you know, I got to give a shout out to my guy on Twitter. It's uh, one, I'm blanking on, I'm going to say your name incorrectly. I apologize, but we'll go with one, Ignacio, for the sake of my pronunciation. He pointed out on Twitter, and I think it's a very good point to make, there hadn't been this many successful uh, – this is, excuse me, the five, fifth title defense of the season. There hasn't been this many successful title defenses in a season, five already this year, since 2018. And there are still more four more months to go. We also, in seeing Alexandrova win this title, she's the first woman that defends a title on a grass court since Kvitova defended her Birmingham title in 2018. Now, could I have read those stats more efficiently for all of you listeners? Absolutely. But we're going to leave that in anyways because it speaks to the fact 
that this doesn't happen very frequently. You know, last year, Sviantek defended her Rome title. Fernandez defended Monterey, Mexico, which I believe is a 250 event. That's it. 20, you know, 2020 doesn't count because of COVID, but I suppose Pliskova, Burton's, Barty all sort of defended titles back to back. You had four in 2018 to 19. You know, this year we've already had Sviantek defend three of her titles, so I don't even know if that counts because she's just that good on clay moving forward. Tatiana Maria defends Bogota. Now Alexandrov, again, first player to defend a grass court title in five years. It's really hard to do. Because there are, because parody is the name of the game. Because go watch the match between Kudermatova and Alexandrova and try to tell me tactically what were the differences between these two players, other than the fact that, you know, again, what were, what what did one have a definitive tactical advantage in over the other in this match? I don't know that one existed. I think Alexandrova hits the ball a little bit flatter, and I think her ball drives perhaps a little bit more fluidly through the court. But I also think Kudermatova is probably a hair more explosive. And, you know, when she steps into her forehand, it feels like she closed her stance a little bit on that forehand, that her shoulder's a little bit tighter. And, you know, again, she's exploding through the ball a little bit more fluidly than she did on a different surface when her stance was a little bit more open it was 7-6 in the third. Like Alexandrova just exit, you know, Alexandrova connected on a couple of returns. And and yes, I, I suppose first serve wise, Kudermatova didn't have the best first serve percentage in the third set breaker. That's the difference in this match. You know, again, the margins are paper thin between the two. Alexandrova, 9 of 12 uh, in terms of saving break points in the match. You look for Kudermatova. She saved 5 of the 8 break points that she faced. Alexandrova wins 75% of her first serve points. Kudermatova wins 71% of her first serve points. Now, neither player is over 42% on the second serve. Both players make over 60% of their first serves in the match. It was top 10 tennis. I can't emphasize that enough. How well Kudermatova was moving the ball around the court. How well Alexandrova was moving and absorbing that pace and beating Kudermatova to spots down the line when she was connecting with her forehand line. There were just moments where, you know, Alexandrova was down a set and a break in the match, 6-4-3-2, and just started to connect a little bit more cleanly on that forehand wing. And look, right now, uh, Ekaterina, neither Ekaterina Alexandrova, excuse me, nor Veronica Kudermatova ranked top 25 in both hold or break uh, and break percentage. They're not two of the 12 players you'd say that about. And yet, you know, you look for Ekat now over the course of the past year, she's won three titles. She's now back to back in the Netherlands. She won a title in Seoul in September. She's currently sitting at number 22 in the live rankings in terms of the points race right now. Alexandrova currently sitting at 22 as well. She's just a top. She is a top 25 player, and the problem is there are weeks where she loses first round. Where again, I suppose the the losing streaks can occasionally pile up. You look for uh, Alexandrova, who's 30 and 17 overall over the last 52 weeks. That includes uh, honestly, she's actually been much better of late. But first round losses in Linz, in Stuttgart, in Rome. Oh, first round losses in Linz, Stuttgart, Rome, Guadalajara. Indian Wells, that's not bad. Only five first-round losses over the course of the past year. 
I mean, that's how you become a top 25 player in the world. And, you know, again, you look in terms of, I mentioned the three finals she's made. She's won three titles. She's made five different quarterfinals during this stretch of time as well. You look for her against top 20 opponents. She's six and six against the top 20 over the course of the past year. Ecat's in the conversation. Like her weapons, again, if you can hit the ball a little bit, but Kudmertova did hit the ball big, and Alexandrova was just moving so confidently. She was driving the ball so well. And again, she only dropped one set all week. It was one of those weeks where it just all clicked for Alexandrova. You know, again, who have the losses been for her of late? She lost to Haddad by at Roland Garros, 7 5 in the third. That's not a bad loss. She lost 6-3 in the third to Iga in Madrid. That's not a bad loss. Six and six in Stuttgart to Vekic. Not a great loss, but not a bad loss. Four and two to Georgie in Rome is not exceptional. She lost to Kvitova in Miami. Kvitova won Miami. I like she's had a good year. I, I don't know how else to say it. I, I'm trying to talk myself into Ekaterina Alexandrova and trying to prepare myself to make a case for her to be maybe a top five contender or certainly a dark horse to do some serious damage at Wimbledon. The case I would make is go watch the film. How well she drives the ball, how solid things looked on both wings, how sound she was in her game plan, how confident was she could just go ground stroke for ground stroke with anyone that she faced. It was a really good win for Alexandrova. It was a much-needed final for Veronica Kudermatova, who, for what it's worth now, that's her first final of the season, her first final since April of last year. And, you know, again, Kudermatova just has so many points still to defend this season. Semifinal San Jose, round of 16 U.S. Open, semifinals Tokyo, semifinals Monastir, quarterfinals Guadalajara. There are just pockets of points everywhere. After a season that obviously saw Veronica Kudermatova break into the top 10 of the WTA rankings. And, you know, right now, 22 and 13 overall, she has gotten hot of late. Semis in Madrid, semis in Rome. Yes, she lost first round at Roland Garros, but follows that up by making a finals here in the Netherlands. She started to play her best tennis over the course of the past 10 weeks. And certainly, again, I, I, I see no shame in a 7-6 in the third. My takeaway from this women's event in the Netherlands is that two of your top 10 contenders, and I know hot take one week and they both made finals. Of course, they're in the top 10, but I'm talking more broadly. Sviantek, Sabalenka, Rabakina are clearly the top three contenders heading into Wimbledon in any order you want to pick. After that, who do you choose? You want to say Pagula belongs in that fourth spot? Hard to knock you how consistent she's been all season long, even if she did lose early unexpectedly at Roland Garros. But, you know, again, you want to throw Mukova in the list. You want to throw Goff or, you know, Krejcikova. I don't know that you can make a more definitive argument for any of them and their track records on this court. Even a Pliskova or an Azarenka, I know they've had past success, but are they playing that well right now that you take them definitively over a Kudermatova or over an Alexandrova? I mean, this is a more broad storyline, I suppose, we've been focused on over the past year and a half here on this show. But the answer to that question is no. I can't take anyone more definitively over these two. And so for now, one week in, obviously, we got another week to see a bunch of good players, and it'll be a two-mini break podcast Mondays. I want to talk about who's playing this week, but... Look, Samsonova had to retire against Sasnovich. Sasnovich had a good week making the semifinals after, again, she has really struggled all season long. You look for Alex Sasnovich. It's her first semifinal since Cleveland last year. She went from 
top 30 at the end of last season to number 70, but has steadied the ship by reaching this semifinal. It's a good week. She's still not that, you know, uh, an overwhelming contender. It was a good week for Victoria Kuzmova as well. Shout out to Bechtis Kruger, Selene Neff, who we talked about a bunch last week on this show. But no, the biggest takeaway is just Alexandrova and Kudermatova have to be included in the conversation, especially until we see others, as we already have here on Monday, begin to compete on this surface. That's all your WTA action. Let's stick in the Netherlands as we move over to the ATP side of things. And it was a weird week on the ATP tour. It really was. Uh, You know, again, Medvedev, Tsitsipas each lose their first match of the event. And so, you know, finding the definitive storyline from the week after that was always going to be fun. But, you know, Netherlands and Stuttgart gave us two. And I think you start on the Netherlands side. Talent Greek Spore's success is just real. You look for Greek Spore now, second career ATP title. Both of them coming this year. He won in India earlier this season on the hard courts. Now he wins on home soil in the Netherlands, becomes the highest ranked Dutch player in the world, up to a new career high of number 29. It's on the back of a 6-7-7-6-6-3 victory over Jordan Thompson. I mean, on paper, you look at who... Griegsport had to beat to win this title. Emer, Popperin, Demonauer in three set, Arusavori who had beaten Yannick Sinner, and then Jordan Thompson in three. It's not, you know, a Hall of Fame put it in Newport sort of run, but it's just the sort of run we have seen consistently from Griegsport now throughout the course of this season. You look for him, he's 21 and 10. 21 and 10. You know our rule. The two-thirds rule makes its long Away to, I mean, it's not a debut, but it's been a while since we've talked about the two-thirds rule, where if you're winning two-thirds of your matches, what does that mean? Well, if it's a 32 draw, I win my first match, I'm in the round of 16. I win my second match, I'm into the quarterfinals. I lose that match, I go 2-1 and one overall in the week. I've won two-thirds of my matches. I'm getting to quarterfinals. I'm continuing to progress up the rankings. And for Greek Spore now this year, obviously the two title runs, he made a semi in Rotterdam, a quarter in Marrakesh. He Hasn't suffered, or excuse me, three first-round losses for him this year. He lost three sets to Wawrinka in Monte Carlo. He lost six and six to Paparin in Banja Luka. He had to retire in a first-round match in Madrid against Munar. I mean, again, he's just, he's getting wins every week. And then, you know, once he finds that rhythm on his on-the-run forehand, oh my God. God, did he hit it exceptionally all week long. Whether it was, you know, again, he he out forehand Jordan Thompson and he just could attack Jordan Thompson in more ways than vice versa in that final. And Thompson was so... Uh, so efficient with his first serve, with his first forehand, and moving his forehand around the court, inside out, inside out, inside in, following that inside in into the net. Certainly, he wore down the legs of Rinki Hijikanta doing that in the semifinal, wore down the legs of Rayanich and Manorino doing so in the prior rounds as well. And by the way, credit to Jordan Thompson, who makes his second career ATP Tour level final. Both of them now have come at this event in the Netherlands. It's a heck of a week for Thompson, back up to number 76 in the rankings as a result, but man, Talon Greekspor is just the real deal, and you look right now, Greekspor, he's number five in hold percentage on the ATP Tour in this 2023 season. Greekspor, excuse me, number four, he's holding serve 87.6% of the time. 
You see that in the forehand and in his ability not just to hit his spots on the serve, but his slice serve wide first forehand to the open court on these grass courts when you have to be on the full sprint and just it's so difficult to hit that ball or even if you do land that first pass, all you have to do is the volleyers make the first volley and you've won the point. Greeks were so efficient with that ball on the grass court. He keeps his slice so low on that backhand wing, and then when he gets you in a lull, he runs around that slice and you know explodes through his forehand inside out to set everything else up in his game. I know it's a bit of a stereotype as it relates to players who are pretty good at everything but don't have that definitive weapon. It's in the GoFan model for Talon Greeksborn. No definitive weakness. Yes, the back, a forehand backswing is a little big. And if you can play with elite pace through that wing, you can put him in trouble. And look, yeah, I guess Rusevori is a guy who can play with elite pace at times, but Greek Sport just did such a great job mucking that ball up, hitting into the outer thirds, throwing slice to prevent Rusevori from having anything in his strike zone. You know, again, Demon is a great athlete, but does he have an overwhelming weapon other than his speed? Maybe not really. Popperin, is he consistent enough with his weapons to really do damage with that Greek Sport forehand? Not really. He didn't play elite pace, perhaps. In most of the matches he played this week, but unless you have elite pace, Talon Greeksport is just going to take it to you when healthy. And I know health has been an issue for him on and off, but he was healthy this week. He captures title number two. He does it on home soil. You get teary watching, uh, you know, again, what was going through his face. He collapses on the ground, face into the court. Just you could tell how much it meant to him. That's what makes this sport so special. Moments like that. Credit to Greeksport. Credit to Jordan Thompson. Two grass court finals. He looks so comfortable moving on this surface. You know, he knows exactly what he he wants to do with his forehand, the heaviness of his forehand, dealing with the weight of this shot on this surface. It's just that much easier for him to sneak behind a well-connected inside-out forehand, and he is so comfortable playing that first volley to the open court. He was great. Reiki Hijikata, lucky loser to first career semifinal. He's into the top 125 of the ATP rankings. Rusevori solidified his spot inside the ATP top 50. You know, again, we lost Sinner in the quarters. We lost Demon in the quarters. Hijikata over Mackie McDonald in three sets, by the way, was just such great shot making and such athleticism in that quarterfinal match. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not selling all my stock on center. I thought Rusevori played really just – he just knew what to expect from Yannick. And those are two guys who have played a couple of times. A lot of similarities in their game. Look, it, it's a credit to Rinky. Do I think he's going to – could he win a match at Wimbledon and qualify through qualifying, which is where his ranking will afford him to get in, qualify through qualifying? Good sentence there, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. Could Rus win a couple of matches? Rusevori, sure. Thompson, same deal. Greek Spore's the guy who you watch and you say, hmm, he's got all the shots, that low center of gravity. He moves so well on this surface. He's so balanced in his footwork. I mean, again, do I have him in my list of contenders to win the title? No, I don't know what my list of contenders to win the title is outside of Novak Djokovic right now. I mean, Carlos Alcaraz is really good at tennis. Medvedev, Yannick Sinner, they're really good at tennis. How good are they at grass court tennis? I got to I gotta hit the film. I'm still not entirely sure about those answers for all of you listeners yet. And again, that's what we have this month of warm-up events, I suppose, to figure out as both podcasters and fans. But 
no pro prolific takeaways, I suppose, from the action in the Netherlands. Shout out to Talon Griegsborg again. He has been, though, that good throughout the course of this season. As has Francis Tiafo, your final title winner of the week at the tour level. Francis now an ATP top 10 player. And I did the rant in the opening monologue, so I'm not going to do it again. But it's just all the potential, all the talent, all the athleticism so many speculated about. It's all been actualized. It's all been realized. I mean, Francis is 50 and 22 over the course of his past week, uh, past year. He's 27 and 9 in 2023. Two titles on grass court and clay courts this year. He also, of course, neither of those are his best of, like results of the year. I don't know why the like slipped in, but he wins the title here in Stuttgart. He won the title on the clay in Houston. But of course, his most notable result was reaching the semifinals at Indian Wells and you know, again, he also helped win a United Cup. He reaches third-round U.S. Open, third-round Roland Garros, losing to Hachinov and Zverev, two semifinalists respectively, in two very competitive matches. You win two titles, you make a couple of third rounds, you make an Indian Wells uh, semifinal, you also have a U.S. Open semifinal, which he has, of course, on his resume. That's what a top 10 player looks like. And even if you filter out the uh, U.S. Open points, Francis is 12th in the points race this season. He's, you know, 330 points behind Hatchinoff for the number 10 spot. And, you know, while there's a sizable 650-ish point gap between he and Kasparuda, uh, he and Kasparud, excuse me, for the eighth spot in the points race, which would be that final spot getting into the ATP finals, there are two slams to go. And a hardcourt, North American hardcourt season for Francis Tiafo to make a move. He's very much in the chase through the first half of the season. And look, I mean, again, if you're asking the question, who's been had the better season? Who's been the best American so far this year? I think Tiafo, Fritz, and Tommy have all wrestled with the crown, have all taken it from one another at different points this season. You watch Francis play. First of all, the first serve is elite. And you look for Francis Tiafo so far this season, he is not just a top 25 server on the ATP Tour. Francis Tiafo ranks fifth on the ATP Tour and hold percentage, 87.4. The first serve's a cannon. He follows it, whether it's with a first forehand when he has time to set on that first forehand, whether it's the drop shots he can incorporate when he gets you frozen, whether it's just a straight-up serve and volley play, which he utilized quite effectively against Struff throughout the course of the match. Tiafo wins over 80% of his first serve points in three of his four victories. By the way, he beat Lachetchka, Fucevic, Struff, all guys with serious weapons on this surface, and then a guy in Lorenzo Musetti who's playing some of his best ball of the season right now. It was four impressive victories for Francis Tiafo. and look, Francis had a match point up 6-5 on Struff's serve, third set breaker, they play this physical rally, the longest rally of the match by far, and Tiafo, you know, starts driving through the backhand and got a little tentative. Struff able to connect with a backhand to draw Tiafo error for six all. Struff then sets up a match point on serve seven six. Tiafo big first serve, big first backhand down the line combination, assertive, authoritative, no doubt in his mind he gets things back to level. You know, he gets to a match point. 8-7 after another good first serve, first forehand combination. Struff fights things off for 8-all, and that's where things get interesting. 8-all, third set breaker, where, what does Francis Tiafo do to win the point? 
It's the thing we have been asking for and the thing all of us have pointed to throughout the course of his career, the forehand return. The better that forehand return gets, the higher Francis Tiafo's upside becomes. Francis Tiafo, eight all, Strew first serve to the Francis forehand. Francis drives through the forehand, gets the ball deep enough with enough pace, enough action that it's on Strew's body before he knows it. Strew shanks the error away. 9 8 Francis Tiafo, match point, first one on serve for either guy. It's a miraculous point. That sees Struve guess right on a Tiafo overhead and force Tiafo to have to hit this incredible stretch forehand drop volley, which of course Francis Tiafo executes because he's a top 10 player in the world and he's Francis freaking Tiafo and he's as good at improvising and his first step in that moment, those sorts of things, that's what he does better than anyone else. Those intangible qualities, Tiafo has them in spades, but it's that forehand return at all in the breaker. It's the fact that on this surface, his slice forehand return, that bump forehand, it's actually rewarded. It stays low enough and just keeps the ball in the center of the court, prevents easy first strike opportunities for opponents. He drives through his backhand so well. His little backhand flick cross-court pass sets up the down-the-line drive, which he hits as well defensively. Also, you know, again, he volleys so well. He's so creative and that creativity, his improvisational skills rewarded on this surface. Again, his first step, it, I don't care what surface you're on, it's elite. I'm not saying he's a contender to win the title. But again, given all the unknowns on the ATP side of things, outside of Djokovic and maybe if you want to say Murray, whatever, on these grass courts, Tiafo's in the second week mix. And once you get to the second week, now there's only 16 guys left. And as long as Novak Djokovic isn't the other guy on uh, the guy on the other side of the net from you, you feel like on this surface, you got a shot. And that's, again, the highest compliment you can say for Francis Tiafo. Not only is he number 10 in the world, he's just got a shot at every event that he plays because he is he can just do so many things so successfully. And again, after years of projecting, that might be the case. That's where we now are with Francis Tiafo, 27-9 here on the season. He is one of the 12 ATP players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage, and I'll give you those lists in a moment here. Uh, but credit to Tiafo. Shout out to Jan Leonard Struff. I mean, again, Struff has played top 20 tennis for four months now, and you look for Struff, 61-27 and 27 in his last 52 weeks, 40-16 and 16 here this season. Let's just run through what he's done throughout the course of the year. Uh, again, since since the start of March, Indian Wells qualifies, makes second round. Phoenix Challenger semis, Miami qualifies, makes second round, loses first round Marrakesh, qualifies quarterfinals Monte Carlo, beats Casper, beats Diemenauer, loses first round Munich, lucky loser in Madrid where he makes the final, Bordeaux semifinal challenger lost, first round Roland Garros lost, five sets to Lechechka, now finals of Stuttgart. 40 and 16. He's won 71% of his matches. He's one of just seven players to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. His weapons translate just as well to hard uh, to clay courts as they do to hard courts as they do to grass courts. He won over 80% of his first serve points in four of his five matches this past week, and he won over 90% of his first serve points in two of his five matches. He was broken a grand total of three times on the week overall. He's just playing—the 33-year-old's playing free. 
He's playing assertive. He's playing top 20 tennis. He has those sorts of weapons. And again, he's just swinging freely. It's a, it's a treat to watch. It's a pleasure. He's the real deal. Can absolutely make the second week at Wimbledon. I mean, again, credit to Struff. Not only does he have Tiafo right there, you know, again, two breakers. It took, Struff had a match point, albeit not on his serve, but he had a match point. And, you know, he beat Hubi Hercots 6-3 in the third. And what was another really fun match where just Struff was better at executing the plus one game than Hercots was. You know, he beats Gasquet, a guy who could pull out all the tricks on this surface. He beats Tommy Paul earlier in the event as well. Struff's the real freaking deal. That's just, it's as simple as that. And, we, and I wish we still had Matt Stokowiak on the podcast more frequently. There's a mini break podcast episode End of 2018, myself, Stokowiak, Jamie McDonald, we talk about if Jan Leonard Schroof puts all his pieces together, he could have a four-month run like this. It took five years to get there, but Jan Leonard Schroof is finally having a five-month run like this or a four-month run like this, and it's simply sensational to watch. So credit to Jan Leonard Schroof. Again, him, Francis, both second-week guys, absolutely in the mix at Wimbledon. That's not a hot take. So is Hubie. I don't think he played a bad match. I just think Struff's that good. Like that, It's as simple as that. And then, look, there are times when Marton Fucevic is going to Fucevic, and he was just big enough, strong enough to handle the pace of Fritz, to knock out a guy like Ibingu in the second round as well. I don't know. I don't like. Did you learn anything new about Fucevic this week? No, he can play this level of tennis at times. I'm not writing off Fritz week one of the grass. I'm not writing off anyone after week one of a season on on a surface. You do take notice of the guys who particularly impressed, though, and you just wonder. Excuse me, how replicable is that success moving forward? And for Struff, we've seen it for four months. For Tiafa, we've seen it for a year now. Again, Hubi Fritz. Fucevic, guys, you maybe watch a little bit more closely moving forward. Musetti as well, dude. I don't know why I said dude, sorry. But Musetti's just playing some serious, serious tennis right now. But those are my thoughts on the four tour-level events we saw this week. Now, quickly to end the show, two thoughts. A, on the old heads. Andy Murray's won 10 matches in a row. He's won 20 of his last 21 sets. He has done it all on grass courts. He has been broken one, four, six, seven, eight, nine times. He's been broken nine times in 10 matches. I mean, he just knows how to use... He, again, like a Novak Djokovic, is just comfortable on this surface. He knows how to keep the ball in front of him. He knows when it's time to play slice versus when you have to drive versus when you have to go line to keep that ball in front of you and just make sure like, yes, I'm leaving open space, but that open space is the only play available for my opponent. And that's how I will be able to recover and track that ball down. He's comfortable serving in volleying. He's comfortable playing the drop shots. He's comfortable taking the return of serve on the rise and just making you a little bit more uncomfortable or grinding out that one break and protecting things from there. Now, look, it's worth noting during this streak of 10 matches, Andy Murray played a grand total of zero top 50 opponents and played a grand total of three top 100 opponents, three sets over Kubler, straight sets over Thompson, that one aged well, and then three and two over Nudo Borges. What does that tell you? If he's seated, 
he should get through the first two rounds. He should get a shot at, at a big dog. And if nothing else, he's up to number 38 in the world. Like a good w- run this week makes a, you know, what, a quarterfinal, we'll say, in London or, God willing, a semifinals. Now he probably will be a top 32 seed. And I'll tell you what, if he's not playing Novak Djokovic as the number one seed, there's no reason he can't beat any of the other guys right now in a three out of five set match if it's round number three of the event and he can get through rounds one and two a little bit easier. I wonder if you asked Murray if he'd rather be the 29 seed or if he'd rather be unseeded and draw, you know, like a... I don't want to say Sarundalo because he's just so explosive, so that might be a bad example, but like a Yoshi Nishioka is the number 23 seed. He's like, yeah, I'll play Nishioka in the second round and then deal with like a 12th seeded, what, Tommy Paul in the third round as opposed to just facing a Djokovic straight up in the third. Actually, I wonder... Hmm, well, not a Djokovic, but anyone like an Alcaraz or a Medvedev. That's an interesting question. That would be... Uh, would he rather be seated or unseated? Say, I don't care. I just want to play the guy across from me. But I do wonder tactically what Andy Murray would truly prefer if given truth serum. But look, he's serving well. He's moving well. And now he has the one thing he's been looking for. Match confidence. Ten consecutive wins. Let's keep in mind, you look at last year for Andy Murray at Wimbledon. What was he able to do? I want to say it was... Second round, yeah, he beat Duckworth, then got knocked out in four uh, by Isner. But, of course, if you go back to 2021, beats Basilashvili, beats Ota before getting knocked out by Shapovalov. And, you know, obviously, Australian Open, five sets with Berrettini, five sets with Kokonakis, four sets with RBA, U.S. Open last year for Murray, whether it was the, you know, what, the four sets with Bertin or what was what was the dramatic one last year was it last year's I mean he's just played so many five setters at the majors over the course of the past few seasons that they all start to add up and so it was probably the Ota five setter that's the one that maybe sticks out most to me when he was down two sets to one and then comes back to win that match and I mean other than the Australian uh so many the point is he was great this week He's in the mix. He's certainly one of the 25 best players in the world on grass courts, and it's just a matter of where where, where or will he be seated and where will he fall in the draw. He's old head number one, old head number two. Shout out Kei Nishikori. Back from injury, playing his first matches since October 2021. What does he do? He wins the challenger title in uh, Puerto Rico. Nishikori wins over Langmo, Kruger, Walton, Hyde, and then qualifier and rising Columbia sophomore, Columbia University sophomore, Michael Zhang. I mean, look, Kruger, Walton, even Zhang to some extent, they didn't have the overwhelming weapons to push Anishi Kori. But that's probably the highest compliment you can pay, Kei Nishikori, is that even after three months, these guys still didn't have the overwhelming weapons to push him. And it just felt like he was on his front foot. He was exploding through the ball. Yeah, the serve was still a little shaky. And you could tell he was rolling in some second serves. And, you know, the footwork wasn't quite as clean when he was put under pressure on that uh, by a return of serve. But everything else looked pretty fluid. And Look, Nishikori is going to get a main draw wild card into any event he wants to play. I'm sure if he wants to go play Wimbledon, that will be an option available to him. And throughout the U.S. summer, Cincinnati, you know, if he wants to go play Winston-Salem's or Atlanta to get his legs under him. I know he's coming to play Bloomfield Hills, so I suppose he's not playing Wimbledon. Nishikori looked good. They look top 10 in the world good. Not quite there yet. 
but he certainly looks like a top 100 player in the world. And it's sort of like if you don't have some weapons to put him under serious pressure, he is still very much in rhythm. And so credit to Kei Nishikori, credit to Andy Murray, a couple of old heads earning a couple of challenger titles proven they still got the game to hang at uh, in this professional tennis world. That said, final thing before we go. Obviously, this past Friday was fa- uh, past Friday. This past Sunday was Father's Day. A happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there listening to our show. Appreciate all you do um, in life. I will say, in particular, today, June nineteenth, isn't just the day after Father's Day. It happens to also be my father's birthday. And so, first and foremost, Westoff, give me the birthday sound effect, please. Happy I can simply say this. This podcast would not exist without my father. He's a very loving man. He would be the first to say, I don't even know half the things he does for me, even at this age. And I would be the first to admit that's extraordinarily true. So happy birthday, Dad. Happy belated Father's Day. I love you. Our podcast loves you. This wouldn't happen without you. And I already talked to him on the phone today. So all the other thoughts were expressed to him. 61 years young. I always say he's Benjamin buttoning it. He's looked 61 since he was 41. And so now that he actually is 61, he's very ready to play the part. And it's a good looking 61 year old man. So happy birthday, dad. Love you. With all of that said, that'll do it for today's podcast. A shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. A shout out, of course, as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point for their support. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. A reminder. Other things we have available for you right now on our Crack Rackets platforms. You've got interviews with Fung Run Tian, Austin Krejcik, and many more over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed, 2023 College Tennis Award Shows and Challenger Tour updates over on the GSP feed. All of that content available on our website, CrackedRackets.com. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.